You're listening to the podcast From Israelite to Jew with Michael Sadler. Episode 18, Jesus and Other Strange Jews. Pharisaic, defined by the Oxford English Dictionary as strict in matters of doctrine and ritual observance, but lacking in charity or in a devotion, formalistic, laying great stress on external observance of religious and moral laws, and assuming superiority on that account, legalistic, self-righteous, hypocritical. Not quite a ringing endorsement. For the most part, the Pharisees have gotten a bad rap. The source of these negative connotations is easy to pinpoint. In the New Testament, the Pharisees are consistently portrayed as the antagonists of Jesus and his followers. They are indeed shown as ritually strict and spiritually myopic. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, Jesus declares in Matthew 23, 23. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. In Mark chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, the Pharisees evilly plotted against Jesus when he dared to heal a man's arm on the Sabbath. In a similar story in the Gospel of John, the Pharisees condemned Jesus for healing a blind man on the Sabbath. The Pharisees, of course, also played a part in plotting Jesus' death, according to these Gospels. The writers of these Gospels had good reason for portraying the Pharisees in such a negative light, as they did to virtually all Jewish leaders. Written from around 70 CE to 120, the Gospels struggled to define the relationship of this young community of believers in Jesus with Jews and Judaism. If Jesus really fulfilled the Messianic prophecies of the Hebrew Bible, why did most Jews continue not to acknowledge him? At a time when the church was increasingly turning its missionary attention to Gentiles, these condemnations of the Pharisees and other Jewish leaders created some distance between them and the Jews. This does not mean that the gospel accounts are completely false. It does, though, highlight the difficulties of getting at the truth. Who were the Pharisees? How important were they in the first century BCE through the first century CE? How did they fit into the larger context of religious ferment that existed in Judea at that time? In the last episode, I looked very narrowly at the Dead Sea Scrolls and the community that produced it. In this episode, I want to move the lens back a little, if you will, to present a wider view of the Jewish religious groups active at this time. Pharisees, Sadducees, and Christians might be the best known of these groups, but they existed within a diverse Jewish religious landscape. I've used the word group rather than sects intentionally. Sect is a loose term, even as used by sociologists. But I would like to use it to characterize a subgroup that deliberately cultivates a separate identity from the main group and that engages in some kind of physical separation from that group. The community at Qumran might be a good example of a sect. When we turn to Pharisees, Sadducees, and these other Jewish groups, though, 
the degrees of distinctive identity and physical separation appear to have been much weaker. Such groups resembled voluntary associations, which were common in the Greco-Roman world. We see such groups in antiquity most frequently as funerary clubs or mystery religions. In the former funerary clubs, members would pay dues, eat together one or more times a year, and then be responsible for each other's burials. The mystery religions would involve periodic group meetings at which the deity or deities such as Isis were worshipped. Both kinds of groups created distinctive identities, but neither did much in the way of separation. The analogy is helpful, if not precise, for thinking about the evolution of the Pharisees. As you may remember, the Pharisees, together with the Sadducees, appear to have come onto the scene largely as political entities in the 150s BCE. They then largely disappear from sight until the first century CE. According to Josephus and the New Testament, they remained engaged in political affairs, although in a much more limited and subtle way. Indeed, by the first century CE, the Romans had taken control of all of the true organs of political power. If Josephus is to be believed, the Pharisees distinguished themselves as the most accurate interpreters of the law. Even the New Testament accounts tend to shy away from ascribing direct political power and influence to the Pharisees. This is mainly reserved for priests, elders, and sometimes scribes. What I want to suggest is that under Roman rule, the Pharisees evolved into a relatively small, elite group whose limited power derived from precisely the perception, probably cultivated, that they were politically disinterested. According to Josephus, who almost always exaggerates his numbers, there were only 4,000 Pharisees. When Josephus says that most Jews in Judea followed the Pharisees, he clearly means that when they, the Pharisees, did venture into the public sphere, their statements were respected, not that they were immediately accepted. This understanding of the Pharisees also helps to make sense of their name and their depiction in rabbinic sources. The Greek term Pharisee appears to derive from the Hebrew word perush, which means separatist. Scholars have long noted that when the rabbis mention the Pharisees, which is rarely, they almost never portray them as acting in the public sphere. They are rather a distinct Jewish subgroup concerned with such matters as tithing. They do not appear to have been centrally organized. We might imagine small local groups of self-identified Pharisees exercising what would have been seen as exceptionally rigorous or pious adherence to the commandments. This would have given them a prestige that would have been respected when these local groups occasionally intervened in public affairs. Pharisees, according to Josephus, also had a distinctive theology. It seems likely to me that Josephus emphasized their theology over their ritual practices, not because they were in fact more important, but because he expected that his readers would be more interested in their distinctive ideas. Josephus even refers to them as a school, using a Greek term typically used to denote a philosophical group. Here I quote Josephus directly, from the Jewish War, Book 2, beginning with paragraph 162. They attribute everything to fate and to God. 
They hold that to act rightly or otherwise rests indeed for the most part with men, but that in each action fate cooperates. Every soul they maintain is imperishable, but the soul of the good alone passes into another body, while the souls of the wicked suffer eternal punishment. To this we might add the evidence from the book of Acts that the Pharisees, in contrast to the Sadducees, believe in the existence of angels. What we have is interesting, if thin. Josephus distinguishes the Pharisees by their positions on fate and afterlife. The first position on fate is rather incoherent. It would appear, first of all, that the Pharisees distinguished fate and God. It is not that God sets a person's fate, but that there is fate independent of God, and that both are active forces in the lives of human beings. Now, this position seems to come very close to the Greek notion of the god of fate, called Tiche, and very popular in the Greco-Roman world. Josephus might subtly acknowledge this by using a different Greek term for the concept of fate. We are left wondering how the Pharisees might have reconciled a belief in fate, or for that matter, angels, with their belief in a single God. A more glaring inconsistency with their position on fate, however, is that between predeterminism and free will. Brought to its logical conclusion, of course, a belief in fate denies human agency. If all is decreed, how can we act in the world? Even more problematic is what this might imply about the Odyssey, God's justice. If we are not free to act for good or ill in this world, then it would not be just to punish us for our bad actions. That is, in the same way that we do not hold responsible those who do not have the capacity or the capability to know the difference between what is good and bad, God could not justly punish us if we had no choice but to commit a sin. This is a classic theological problem that to a limited degree the authors of the Dead Sea Scrolls dealt with. For them, children of light appear to have a choice of whether to follow their destinies. To join the group meant that you were predestined for good. It is not too different from the much better articulated position of the later Calvinists. But back to the Pharisees. They wanted both ways. Humans have free moral choice, but fate cooperates. Theologically, I'm honestly not sure what this means. Scholars have long pointed out the similarity of this formulation with a later rabbinic one, recorded in a tractate of the Mishnah called Pirkei Avot, Ethics of the Fathers. Rabbi Akiva says, Everything is foreseen, but free will is given. This doesn't help. It is unclear to me, at least, how the Pharisees would have reconciled these two positions, or in fact, whether they were bothered at all by what appears to us to be logically inconsistent. Josephus, at least, implicitly acknowledges the relationship between the position on free will and fate and that of God's justice for he immediately follows his assertion about the Pharisaic position on free will with that of their position on afterlife. Pharisees, he says, believe in souls. This might seem to be rather banal from our viewpoint, 
But remember that this is among the first explicit statements that any Jews in antiquity believed that humans were comprised of a body and a soul. Philo strongly believed this, but there is no evidence of this belief in the Hebrew Bible and very little explicit evidence in the other sacred books we have considered. This fact might help to explain one of the theological positions of the rabbis that I have found most surprises and even upsets my students. The rabbis of antiquity firmly believe that in the afterlife, the world to come as they call it, there will be bodily resurrection. This is meant literally. Most rabbis appear to believe that humans did not have an independent, sentient soul. You, the essence of you, is in your flesh. And thus, when your body dies, you die. There are no souls floating around in heaven. There is nothing until the advent of the messianic period. Then and only then you come alive again in the flesh. And only in the flesh are you judged for your previous actions. This basic anthropology, that humans do not have independent thinking souls, is largely true to the concept of the person found in the Bible, and then later pre-Rabbinic Jewish literature. Later rabbis in the Middle Ages would move more toward the dualistic notion of the person made up of a body and a soul that has become popular today. The notion of a physical, fleshly resurrection in the world to come, in fact, so disturbed the reform movement that they altered the traditional liturgy. Traditionally, the second blessing of the Amidah, the central prayer in any Jewish liturgical service, concludes with the line, Praise be you, Adonai, who brings the dead to life. Reform liturgy reads instead, Praise be you, Adonai, who brings everything to life. A subtle but significant change. The Pharisees, though, did appear to believe that humans have souls, and that these souls, in fact, comprise the essence of one's personality. It is these souls that are held responsible for one's deeds, good or bad. The bad souls suffer eternal punishment, one imagines in a kind of hell. Interestingly, there is no heavenly counterpart. Good souls, rather, trains migrate. They are born again, rewarded with continued life. Despite their belief in an independent soul, they too believed that eternal life meant a life in the flesh. Their reward, though, is immediate rather than deferred to the world to come. Josephus again leaves us with a host of theological questions. Were the transmigrated souls aware of their previous lives? Could a soul that was rewarded in one body be punished for its behavior in the next? Do we envision some kind of economy of souls in which God acts as the central banker, injecting new souls into the soul supply as needed? We don't know how the Pharisees might have answered any of these questions. One other characteristic of the Pharisees mentioned elsewhere by Josephus is their reliance on non-scriptural traditions. Josephus writes, for the present, I wish merely to explain that the Pharisees had passed on to the people certain regulations handed down by former generations and not recorded in the laws of Moses, for which reason they are rejected by the Sadducean group, who hold that only those regulations should be considered valid, which were written down in scripture 
and that those which had been handed down by former generations need not be observed. Pharisees and Sadducees apparently disagreed about the authority of these extra-scriptural traditions or regulations. Scholars have seen in this passage an allusion to the later rabbinic notion of an oral Torah, a set of divine regulations that were transmitted orally from Sinai to the present. It is worth noting that the passage actually says neither that the traditions had a divine origin, nor that they were transmitted orally. Throughout this discussion, I have alluded to the connection between the Pharisees and the later rabbis. For some time, there was a scholarly consensus that after the fall of the temple in 70 CE, the Pharisees transformed themselves into the rabbis. This consensus, however, while not entirely discredited, is today somewhat frayed. The central problem with it has always been that the rabbis never actually say this. In the entire rabbinic corpus, they never identify themselves as a group, as Pharisees or former Pharisees. In the few places that they explicitly mention the Pharisees, they always treat them as a separate group, even when they might ultimately agree with the legal positions that, to which they are ascribed. A couple of rabbinic precursors are identified as rabbis, but this does not mean very much. This is not to deny that there was some connection between the Pharisees and the rabbis. The overlap of ideas and legal positions do suggest that there was some link. That link, however, does not appear to have been a simple and linear transformation. Modern scholars follow ancient sources in frequently contrasting the Pharisees with Sadducees. We know even less, though, about the Sadducees than we do about the Pharisees. Their name derives from the name Tzadok, King David's high priest, whose family, as you may remember, claimed the high priesthood right up until the Hasmoneans took it away. So right away, a hypothesis presents itself. The Sadducees were comprised of the disaffected upper crust of the priesthood. As tempting as this hypothesis is, and it is one that for a long time went unquestioned in the scholarly literature, there is actually little other evidence to support it. Both Josephus and the New Testament record that some of the priestly aristocracy were Sadducees, but non-priests too were part of the group. Nor do we have any good evidence that the Sadducees were more aristocratic or elite than Pharisees. It is very difficult to make claims that the groups represented different social classes. Josephus's comments about the social composition of the Sadducees, as opposed to the Pharisees, is nothing short of bizarre. The Pharisees, he writes, are affectionate to each other and cultivate harmonious relations with the community. The Sadducees, on the contrary, are, even among themselves, rather boorish in their behavior, and in their intercourse with their peers are as rude as to aliens. I don't know exactly what Josephus is trying to get at here, but it is no slip of the pen. He repeats the assertion elsewhere. As with the Pharisees, while Josephus appears to depict Sadducees as a political group in its early years, they appear more as a religious association by the first century. Josephus focuses his comments on the same issues that he discussed for the Pharisees, their stance toward fate, free will, and afterlife. The Sadducees, he says, deny the existence of fate 
and posit a transcendent rather than personal God who does not interfere at all in human affairs. Humans have full freedom of choice. Sadducees deny the existence of souls, and thus, too, penalties in the underworld and rewards. They reject the authority of extra-scriptural traditions, or at least the ones to which the Pharisees subscribed. Rabbinic literature in the Dead Sea Scrolls reveals some of their positions regarding Jewish law, but these scattered data don't really add up into a coherent picture. In contrast to the Pharisees, the Sadducees do not think that the scrolls of holy books render the hands ritually impure. They insist on stricter ritual purity when dealing with the ashes of the red heifer, which served as a potent purification agent. Issues of purity sacrifice in the temple predominate, but a few other ritual details are also recorded. It is hard to know what was really at the heart of the disagreement between Pharisees and Sadducees. It was not an issue of class. It is hard to imagine that the core issue was theological. Today we define religious difference largely in theological terms, what people believe, but in antiquity they did not. And besides, these theological differences seem to grow well after the formation of the groups. Differences of ritual probably were closer to the heart of the matter. Ritual, especially regarding purity and the temple, had serious ramifications. An impure temple would lead to a defective sacrifice, which would cause God to become angry and to withdraw protection from the people, or worse. The authors of MMT defined their issues in terms of a similar set of rituals. Yet my own suspicion is that if one drills a bit deeper into admittedly murkier waters, the root cause is authority. More specifically, the authority and interpretation of scripture. This goes beyond the Pharisaic acceptance of extra-scriptural traditions, although that's part of it. While all Jews would agree that scripture was authoritative, there was less agreement about its interpretation or the method by which it was to be legitimately interpreted. Perhaps an analogy today could be made to constructivist versus activist interpreters of the U.S. Constitution. Both approaches yield different interpretations, although the root issue is one of hermeneutics, or interpretive approach. Both are loosely organized, but both also have established institutions through which they can more formally interact. The analogy is not precise, of course. Constructivists and activists actively articulate their interpretive strategies, whereas if Pharisees and Sadducees did, these articulations are now lost to us. But somewhere underneath the diverse ritual and theological differences, I suspect, lurks this core issue of interpretive approach. If the Pharisees and Sadducees are two groups that define themselves in part against each other, and that struggle over the meaning of a single scripture, another cluster of groups emerged around a different issue. During the first century CE, the area around Jerusalem teemed with charismatic religious leaders and their small bands of followers. These groups too relied on scripture, but only in one very specific way. Their leaders were thought to fulfill the messianic prophecies of scripture. Scripture authorized the leader, but it was the leader who was then paramount. These groups did not seek political power 
but instead often insisted that God would soon throw off Roman rule from the Jews. Even though these claims did little to incite actual resistance against Rome, the Romans naturally saw them as seditious and sought to suppress them. One relatively well-known leader of such a group was John the Baptist. In Josephus' account, some Jews believed that the Tetrarch Herod's army was destroyed because Herod had put John to death. John, Josephus continues, had exhorted the Jews to lead righteous lives, to practice justice toward their fellows and piety towards God, and so doing to join in baptism. In his view, this was a necessary preliminary if baptism was to be acceptable to God. They must not employ it to gain pardon for whatever sins they committed, but as a consecration of the body, implying that the soul was already cleansed by right behavior. In the New Testament accounts, John's message is given a more eschatological flavor. Certainly from the position of the ruling powers, John's group would have appeared little different from the today lesser known, but then much more popular, Therudas. Therudas, Josephus tells us, claimed, falsely according to Josephus, to be a prophet, and led a large group of Jews to the Jordan River, which he would part. But he never got that far. The Roman procurator broke the group up and had Therudas beheaded. A similar fate, of course, waited for the most popular of these roving Jewish charismatic figures, Jesus. There are many other fine podcasts devoted explicitly to the life of the historical Jesus by experts in that area, so I will not say much here. The fact that almost everything that we know about Jesus was written several decades after he died, probably by people who did not know him very well, complicates any historical reconstruction. What we can say with a fair degree of assurance is that Jesus was born and died a Jew, and his essential message, whether it was toward a more moral life or an approaching apocalypse, was consistent with other Jewish groups of the time. Like them also, Jesus derived his authority not from his intellectual abilities or as a model of righteous living, but from charisma. By this, I do not mean his personal charm. From my own reading of the gospel, I don't imagine a smooth man of easy wit. Rather, he was seen by his followers, and maybe by himself, as fulfilling a set of biblical prophecies. And he demonstrated this repeatedly through miraculous acts that especially involved healing others. Like John and Theudas, he attracted a group of Jewish followers, and also like them, he was executed, undoubtedly for the political crime of sedition. Jesus himself made no attempt to create a new movement but his followers slowly began such a process after his death. In time, a distinctive Christian identity would emerge, probably first among its Gentile adherents. Through the first half of the first century CE, though, it was just another Jewish charismatic group around Jerusalem. These earliest followers of Jesus, especially prior to what would become Paul's critically influential interpretation of Jesus' death, resembled John's. They were Jews who emphasized righteous living. On the other hand, they survived the death of their leader only through the belief that the end was near. They were expecting the advent of the Messianic era. It is not likely that they understood Jesus' death as Paul did, 
as a sacrificial act that resulted in human salvation and the redemption of the world. And they certainly would not have seen Jesus as in any way divine. The story of how the small group of Jews was transformed into Christianity is a fascinating and long one that others are better qualified to tell. Let me sum up. In the first half of the first century, in the area in and around Jerusalem, it is not just that Jewish life was diverse. Jewish life had always been diverse. What is new is a profusion of loosely organized Jewish groups. These groups were roughly of two types. One type was composed of groups like the Pharisees and Sadducees, which took their authority from and fought over the meaning and interpretation of Scripture. The second, like that of John, Theudas, Jesus, and those sectarian followers of the teacher of righteousness, was based on the charisma of a single leader. Why now? What was it that provoked this multiplication of groups? Throughout this episode, I have avoided discussing the political, economic, and social shape of the society in the first century. In two episodes, I will return to that topic to try to ground and perhaps explain this religious ferment. Before doing so, though, I want to take a historiographical detour. Josephus has been our guide through many of the episodes in this podcast. But who exactly is he? In the next episode, I want to introduce you more intimately to our dear friend, Yosef ben Matiahua Cohen, also known as Flavius Josephus. You have been listening to the podcast From Israelite to Jew with Michael Sadlow. The original score is by Neil Ginsberg with vocals by Michelle Tattenbaum. Technical assistance was provided by the Language Resource Center and the Instructional Technology Group, both at Brown University. More information can be found at msatlow.blogspot.com or at mlsatlow.com on the public education page. I welcome your comments. Thank you for listening.